I always thought I was way too far gone. You know, nobody wants to know my story. I won't let anybody know my story. Today I'm grateful for my story because it's gotten me to where I am today because I would never be here if it wasn't for the, the running through the thorn bushes like I had to. Hi, my name is Mike Schmucker and I've been coming to Impact since January of 2019. Shortly, uh, mid-2000s probably, started drinking, and it was an everyday thing. But it was a casual drink. It was, I can go home and I can drink four or five beers, and that's a, that's a normal thing. Functional alcoholic is a, is a term that a lot of people use. And then it started to, to numb anything that I had, any, any feelings that I had, any feelings that I was never supposed to show. We got married a couple years after high school. And, and shortly after that, it, the affair started. There was unhappiness in our, in our relationship, but it was more fueled by me wanting the instant gratification, wanting the acceptance from somebody else that I wasn't getting. And at the time, I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I didn't have a compass. I didn't, I didn't, and I hate to say I didn't care. You know, when my, my daughter was born, I had already, been through the separation process. My ex-wife and I were separated, and so my daughter was with me, and I had already started drinking that day. The help came through through getting arrested. Dad gets pulled over, dad gets arrested, goes to jail for a night. Current wife, my, my wife, she had said, you know, you need to get help. I didn't want to live anymore, and I didn't know how to get out of the hole that I was in, the drinking hole, the depression. And so I went to um, Pine Rest, and the doctor sat down with me, and he said, liver is not functioning the way it should, and you have choices right now. You can walk out of this detox, and you can drink, and you'll die, or you can start by drinking just water, and that's when they <laughs> laid it out. The water that the water that saved me, I, I flushed my system with with water, and that's all I, I drink. During that time too, I started going to AA meetings and uh, met a sponsor who is now a, a friend of mine. For years, when I was isolated, that's when thoughts would creep into my head: the fear and the shame. And I would still feel alone because I wasn't able to share what's going on in my heart, what's going on in my life right now. I was never a hugger before I went to Impact. I just, <laughs> and to be able to be able to see smiles and be able to hug and handshake and, and say, I'm doing great today and you're doing great today, so let's celebrate that. And I'm not doing great, but you are. And, 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 and I truly believe that because I can come in now and I can and I can share with you where I'm at. And if I'm not having a good day, that's okay. And you're okay to listen to that. And if you're not having a good day, I'll walk with you for a minute. And what can I, is there anything I can do to help you? Because I didn't have that for a long time. And it's not because people weren't offering it. It's because I wasn't, I wasn't accepting it. Everybody's coming in and everybody's coming in a different in a different part of their life and I sometimes people are coming in and they just they just want they just want you to walk with them and that's, I love doing that. I love doing that today because not so much what can I tell you about me, but what can you tell me 
You know, what can, what's going on in your world that I, maybe I can help with just a little bit. That's huge for me is to be able to be able to be part of Impact, be part of the family, be part of the community. I was baptized on Easter, um, and, and I shared a little bit of, of my story, and it was, a, it was the broad brush, you know, the addiction, the affairs. There needs to be an action behind it, and, and my kids wanted to do that with me. But when Braden and I were getting, when Braden was getting ready for school this morning, and I said, Braden, this is part of Dad's story, and, and we don't like to talk about that side of my story, but we have to know that part of my story because that part of my story is where I'm at today. I need to do a 180 on that lifestyle, and I had done that, but I also have to show God, show my family, show, I need to, I mean it. This is, this is what Dad's life is like today. Yeah, we give it up. Mike was here last night. He sits right there. Um, and man, what a joy he is. How many of you know Mike, have seen him around? He is just such a generative heart. And it's actually hard to believe when you meet Mike that that's the way Mike was not even just a couple years ago. Just suicidal. I don't want to live anymore. His doctor told him, your liver is trash. You're not going to make it if you don't stop drinking. And... Uh, I just love what he told his child, like dad is going to be sharing his story. And it's not the parts that we like to think about, but your dad has changed. I mean, how many kids in here need to see parents and siblings transformed by God, even pastors to be transformed by God? You know what I mean? Like we all need this. And um, I just want you to know whether you've been an addict or you've had an abortion or whether you've had an affair or you've been divorced a bunch of times or you've done things in your life that you're not proud of and have a checkered past, you're in the right place, not because we affirm all those things, but we welcome you here to begin your journey of transformation. So the, the old is gone and the new has come, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's not too late for anybody here. And I get revved up and jacked up to hear stories of change. It's still happening. Like, oh, the world is ending. Yeah, but new life is beginning while the world is ending. And we celebrate that here. You see it as you leave uh, every week on the right-hand side by the, the doors as you come in. Every number in our church has a name. And every name has a story. And every story matters to God. Every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. It really does. And I may not know every story in this place, but God knows your story. It says in Psalm 139, every bit of your story is written in his book, and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows you, cares for you with custom, you know, custom care, and knows every unique snowflake of a soul in this place. And he loves you and created you, has a purpose for your pain and any mistake you've been through. There's no failure that's final. Amen. Not with God. We're in week three of our manifesto series, which is us going down the 30 words on our word wall. 
How many of you got this on your way in? They were handing them out. If you didn't get one, it's this little booklet. I was talking to our graphic art, arts and design person, and she said, this is what's called a zine. And it's not a magazine or a magazine, but it's a little zine. You know, it's kind of like the office. I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious, right? So this is your little zine right here. And in this zine has all of our word wall manifesto words, our creeds, our beliefs, our behaviors. Really, it's a mix of the who and the how we are. And you can take it home and you can read it and maybe you can talk to your kids about it or talk to yourself about it if you're single or talk to maybe a girl that you're seeing across the way that's looking pretty fine here today at church. And you're like, do you want to go out and talk about the zine? And uh, it's a great pickup line. Great pickup line. Some of you here have come to the right place to find your soulmate. Um, but if you need a character reference, talk to me before you date them, because I might know something about them you don't know. So it's not farmersonly.com, but it's a little bit like that around here. So, whoo. I've never gotten on farmersonly.com, but every time that commercial comes on, it's the only commercial I don't change just because I love to see the train wreck of it all. It is beautiful. So the reason we're talking about our manifesto, I think this is pretty obvious for a lot of people here. Some of you haven't been to church in a long time. You hit the pause button. The last year has kind of taken you out and we want to hit the tuning fork and uh, get in the same chord together and the same key together. But there's also a number of people here who haven't ever been to church before at all. Like two people last week I met, they don't go to church and they decided to come. And then there's others of you that are like coming from other churches and wondering if God is leading you to this place. And I want to let you know what this place is so that if you're led here, based on who we are, not who you want us to be or who you're making believe that we are. I want you to know who we are so that before you attach, you don't leave in three months. Like, I didn't know that about this place. Well, now you know. And if you're not about these things, there's probably a great church out there for you, but this isn't going to be the one because guess what? We're not changing our mission, our vision, our strategy, the heartbeat of this house. Okay, we're not becoming whatever your last church was. We love who we are, know we, who we are. We've had a mission. We've had it for over 17 years, and we're not changing one little bit unless God shows us something in his word that we're not in compliance with because the only one change in our mind is God. Okay? So this influx and this infusion of people, welcome aboard. Come underneath what God's doing in this place because I'm not leading this church. God's leading this church. I'm the under shepherd and we're following him. And it's a wild, adventurous ride. So I would m make sure you wear your cup um, in <laughs> if you're a guy. And uh, I don't know what. So anyway, um, we're talking about the manifesto. Craig Rochelle said this, your culture is a combination of what you create and what you allow. Leaders in this place, I want to talk to you for a second. Isn't that true? What you create in that place and what you allow, two, two things that came to my mind. What you create is that bodybuilding. We're the body of Christ. We're building this body to be the body God wants to be the head of. So there's bodybuilding in here, but I also know that human beings are in this place. That means we have a lot of body odor in this place as well. 
And so there's BO that can come in and we can't let BO trump the bodybuilding, the BB. Okay, so we're, with the BB, we want to also acknowledge that we have an odor. And some of you are like, well, God gave us that odor. It secretes out of us and it's pheromones and it's supposed to attract the opposite sex. Not my wife. She's like, put your deodorant on now. And I'm like, well, back in the days of Cro-Magnum, man. She's like, I don't care. I'm not married to Cro-Magnum, man. Get your deodorant on. You smell. And my youngest son, Caleb, um, he's had to have like deodorant for the, like, the last four years because that kid is ripe every night. <laughs> so what we're trying to be as a church is, yeah, we realize we're a body. It's what we create, bodybuilding. But there are some things we don't allow. This is what makes us tick, and this is what makes us ticked. And there's some things we have to have a righteous indignation of, like, that's not going to be here. That attitude is not allowed here. That action is not allowed here. It's not just come one, come all, bring your huddled masses and do what's right in your own eyes. No, we're doing what's right in God's eyes. The undergirding verse of this series is really because we believe we play a part in whether people come to Christ. We believe in election and foreknowledge and predestination, all those big words that maybe you do or don't care about. But we also believe with the calling of God and the election of God that we play a part in making the teaching of our God attractive. It says in Titus, Paul said, show that you can be fully trusted in every way so that you make in every way the teaching of our Lord, our Savior, attractive. We are not here trying to make Jesus attractive. He's already attractive. We are trying to make sure the teaching or representation of God is attractive. So when somebody sees us and we don't just do tell, we do show and tell, and we show that we can be trusted, our teaching can be trusted because we care about making it attractive to the world. Like we have a part to play in that, adorning the doctrine of God, as we said last week. So we're going to talk about five more words in our impact manifesto that you'll find in your little zine there that you can take home. First one is we believe in hope up in here. Hope's not a real popular thing to like wake up and start talking to people about. Try it tomorrow. See how fast you get the cold shoulder or the backhand of fellowship, right? Do you know what I'm even talking about? (laughs) This, you will not have people like enjoy being around happy-go-lucky people that see the good in the world. We love what God said through Paul to the Romans, may the God of hope this week in April fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to overflow with hope, not because we look around and it's like, yeah, circumstantially, it looks like the outcome of things are looking A-OK in America. (laughs) No, that's burying your head in your sand and being oblivious and living in denial. We don't have hope because of what we see around us in the horizontal. Our vertical is God is in control. Nothing's surprising him and I can do anything with Christ by my side. We believe in hope. I, I saw one acrostic that some of you here will latch on to. It was this, hold on, pain ends. I like that. That's hope. You're going through pain. It could be seasonal. It could be chronic. In this life or the next, that pain is going to end. 
and there is hope of eternity and there is hope in the present because when God gets a hold of a life, anything's possible. Hold on. Pain ends. I love that verse because it brings up words that I'm just dying for. Joy and peace and power comes through hope. How many could use a little bit more joy, peace, and power? Yeah. How many of you feel like I'm a, like a deflated balloon? <laughs> and it's like, it's only Monday, 9.30. I wish I could go back to church and get a shot in the arm. A little bit of that Jason epinephrine, you know? No, you got to get in the word. You got to juice up with Jesus in the morning and say, God, give me strength. And I'm not talking about taking steroids. Well, yeah, I am. The steroid of God's story. That's a beautiful thing. You lock in. That's the steroid. That's the growth hormone right there. God, I need your hope in this day. Lift up my eyes and help me to broadcast that to the people in this watching world. Hope, the belief that God is in control and that with him, nothing is impossible. The statement I hope you will hear us say around here on and off down through the years is this, welcome to Impact, a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. I love that. Everybody's welcome, but not everything's welcome here. That's different. Like we welcome everybody. In fact, I have a phrase as it relates to our church. It's like anybody's welcome here, but not everybody wants to come here. And that's fine. Our church isn't for everybody, but it is for anybody. We don't believe that our church like is for everybody. There's awesome churches in our community that we love and do things with. And our church isn't for everybody, but it is for anybody that wants to come. Everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, anything's possible, and nothing's final. You could even add to that. Failure's not final. My mom used to say, and I don't know where she got it, God isn't finished with me yet. God isn't finished with me yet. Think in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it just says, He who started a work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Whatever he started, he'll finish in your life. Hope, anything's possible, anything's possible. And, and I see this in the Bible because all the messed up people that God used to bless the world, the potential he saw in people that we wouldn't give the time of day. Noah, just start with him. He's blameless before God, it says in the text. And Noah was a drunk. Like he got done after saving, you know, his family and making it through the flood and he just threw a rager, you know, and got totally sauced and was naked and his sons came in backwards to cover up their, you know, dad in his birthday suit. It's a really crazy story, but this guy wasn't perfect. And God uses imperfect people. Abraham, the father of our faith. Abraham was timid and deceptive. Jacob was a passionate leader. He was also a chronic liar. Judah was in the bloodline of Christ. It was the lion of Judah. It was named Jesus. Judah was guilty of incest. Joseph was a man of purity, a man after God's heart in many ways, but Joseph was also abused by people growing up. Anybody gone through physical abuse or abuse at the hands of loved one? That, that's him. And God used that in his life and rose him to power, second in command of the known world at the time. Moses 
was God's mouthpiece. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was a mighty warrior. Gideon was deathly afraid. Samson was such a strong soul. Samson was a weak womanizer. Rahab was a deliverer. Rahab was a prostitute. Timothy was a prodigy. Timothy was also said to be too young. He had an ulcer. Remember, he had to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. A Samaritan woman was an evangelist. And the Samaritan woman was divorced and remarried five times. God was, or David was a man after God's own heart. David was also an adulterer and a liar and a murderer. Elijah was courageous, outran a chariot, called down fire from heaven. An amazing man. Elijah also was suicidal and wanted to die. Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh. Jonah ran from God. God still used him. He was also very suicidal at the end of his life. Peter was called the rock. Peter denied Christ. That could go on and on and on. And I just want you to know here, God can use you no matter what you've been through in your life because he used most of the people who penned the scriptures under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit were people that were a mess. God can bless your mess. God can bless your mess. No one is beyond hope. God is always throwing a rope of hope for anybody that feels beyond hope. And hope is rare these days. Negativity is all over the place. It's filling apartments and homes and businesses and airports and Washington and churches. And we're so bent towards seeing the bad, like born and bred in this world to be master troubleshooters. And God's looking for beauty shooters. The kingdom of God speaks this language of hope and potential and possibility all the time. It looks forward to things. It sees the the good even in the bad in our world. And I just want it to be said of me and our church that despite all the circumstances, we are the kind of place that see the good in life and do our best to help others lift their eyes up to see it for themselves. Adele Bashir said this, never underestimate the power of hope. Hope fuels us with the energy and courage to go forward. Never underestimate the power of giving people encouragement and hope and good news and a smile. Like I have this all the time. It was funny. He said, until I came to impact, I wasn't a hugger, but there's a lot of huggers around here. That's a little bit of part of our culture. It's been weird in the last year to be like, hi, distanced over there. And hi, we are human, fearfully human. We love to be face to face. One of the reasons we built this church instead of going to multi-campuses is we didn't want to just go to video screens and me become a pixelated pastor and franchise this thing. We want to be face-to-face with people, knowing and being known. I want to see the creases in your face and the warts on your nose from where I'm standing. The beady little eyeballs looking at me. I want to see that. Like... Oh, there's just a bigger screen here at church. We uh, watch screens all week long. Now we're watching a screen. And it's not anything against screens. We just love being human. And I don't want to be a cyborg and sort of a virtual reality person. That's part of the philosophy. I'm great friends with Jeff Mannion. Met with him last week. Learned great things. That's part of their philosophy. We're a church that loves to look into our beady little eyes, hug, handshake, high five, and say, we want to get to know you and get up in your grill and get raw and real. 
You want to get gritty and gutsy with us? That's our church. Don't be like thrown off by how beautiful things are. We're a hot mess around here that somehow God decided to pay off our $9 million building, all him, not us. But this doesn't represent, oh, we're a church filled with a bunch of millionaires and billionaires and trillionaires. It ain't happening around here. We're a bunch of nobodies that are doing somebody for the most awesome person we know, Jesus. I don't know what that even was tied into, but it was something in here. Let's just move to the next one. Second chances. Second chances. We believe in second chances. Third chances too. Fourth chances. How many of you are like, I blew by second chances before I was 14, right? (laughs) Me, it was seven. I just blew by all my chances and the cat of nine lives. I've got so many lives and chances all by the grace of God. We believe that. Not because we trust you and, and we think you're the best and you're great just the way you are and there's a hero that lives inside of you and blah, blah, blah. We believe the grace of God can pick up your mess and use it for his glory. Because it takes a good God to use great people, but it takes an awesome God to use messed up people. And he's done it all the way through human history. Paul said it this way, wrote half of the New Testament. So he's, you know, he stands on some pretty good feet of credibility. I'm the least of the apostles and I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That means I killed Christians for a living. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect or in vain. No, I worked harder than anybody, yet not I, but Christ Jesus and his grace that worked in me. I love that. I'm drawn to the word unworthy. I am unworthy because I, fill in the blank. How many of you are like, I'm unworthy because I. And I love that he says, but by the grace of God, I am. We all have things because of that. I'm disqualified. I'm invalidated. I'm no longer eligible. Put me on religious, you know, ecclesiastical probation. And God's like, uh, but by the grace of God, you are a different identity in Christ. I might see a sinner, he he sees a saint. When you come to know him as your savior, you enter into sainthood, not because you did three miracles like Mother Teresa and that whole, you become a saint because he covers you with the robe of righteousness of his son and he becomes your sin. And it's his grace through and through. We're called to spread the gospel of God's grace to people. I like to think of this space, even this, this house that we have here, Impact's house that houses this church. The building's not the church, you realize that, right? You and I are the church. So we come to this house, and this is a grace space. This, this to me is like a grace camp or a base camp for what God wants to do. And one of the, the pieces of poetry that I've read for, I think now almost 15 years, that gives the posture and philosophy of our church as it relates to people coming in needing second chances is this. So I stay near the door. I think you might like it. And if you've heard it before, don't stop me. I'd like to hear it again. I stay near the door. 
I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use me going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for the door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stay near the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Men die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for want of what is within their grasp and nothing else matters compared to helping them find that door, to open it, walk in, find him. So I stay near the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars, way up into the spacious attics. It is a vast, roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deep and hidden casements of withdrawal and silence and sainthood. Some must inhabit these inner rooms and know the depths and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I go in and take a deeper look. Sometimes I venture a little further, but my place seems to be close to the opening, so I stay near the door. There's another reason why I stay there. Some people get partway in and become afraid, lest God and the zeal of his house devour them. For God is so very great and asks so much of us, and these people feel the cosmic claustrophobia and want to get out. Let me out, they cry, and the people way inside only terrify them more. That's us. There's people in this room terrified. Like we sang songs in the, oh my gosh, when are they going to butcher a chicken and do a seance? What are these people doing? What have I gotten myself into? And they're terrified. Somebody must be watching for the frightened ones who seek to sneak out just where they came in to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far inside don't see how near these people are to leaving, preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would like to run away, so for them too, I stay near the door. I admire people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet found the door, or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go in too deeply and stay too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as to not hear them anymore. And remember, they're there too. Where, you may ask? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them. Better yet, one of them, two of them, three of them whose hands I'm intended to put on the latch. Thus, I stay by the door and wait for those who seek it. We will stay near the door as a church. Our church will always stay near the door. That's just something to know about us. We are about the un and church, the mischurched, the disenfranchised, 
And we want to be people that adorn the teaching of God to make it attractive when they've been hurt by the church or hurt by hypocritical family members or hurt in this world. We stay near the door so they're not freaked out. Is that okay? I don't care if you think it's okay. That's who we are. I'm glad Jesus stayed near the door. Spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time with just the throngs of people that were a mess, that found his teaching so refreshing. Finally, somebody's bringing it down to our level and talking to us in a language we understand. I remember reading a book called Made to Stick by Chip and uh, Deeth, Dan Heath. And it's just about marketing. How do you make things remarkable or, or sticky? And one of the concepts they brought up is this thing called the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge is defined this way, forgetting what it's like to not know what we now know. Does that make sense? The curse of knowledge is maybe you grew up with this your whole life and you don't even know what it's like to not know what you know now or just expect that everybody should know what we know. So we could be like, and here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. And we sing that song and people are like, what are they, why are they lifting up Ebenezer Scrooge? Right? <laughs> they have no idea why we went into Christmas language. They don't know Ebenezer is a biblical term for a stone of remembrance that we're lifting up. You know what I mean? We gotta just be careful that it isn't really, really prideful to hear ourselves talk in spiritual terms or Christianese is what I call it, and to make sure, do people understand this stuff? Because when Jesus spoke, it was really, really simple that even children ran around and liked to hang out with them. Never forget what it feels like to be lost. Never forget what lost feels like. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirits. And we want to stay close to the brokenhearted and to help save those who are crushed in spirit as well. The next one I want to talk about is forgiveness. And Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, it says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ and God forgave you. And that's hard, isn't it? I mean, I have a hard time not just getting hard hearted and bitter and writing people off and just having grudge matches with people. I mean, it's very difficult to get rid of all bitterness, all of it, and to get rid of all rage and anger and all those things and to replace it with sort of this grace and mercy to become a people of pardon in the church just the way that we've been pardoned by God. And I, I think it's easy to, to be people who come to church but never become the church. And these verses are not asking us to come to church. They're asking us to become a people of God, a peculiar people that God can use to like showcase to the world. Like we're not like the world. We have every reason to, you know, be bitter and full of rage and full of malice and brawling, but that's not our go-to. We, we, we go what? 
toward the wisdom that is from the above, as it says in James chapter three. But I, I wanna just spend a second to give you what I think might be a gift to you today because in all my years of ministry, it's very easy for second chances out there or radical grace or even you know the story of, of hope to be like, well, you're a church and you're full of grace and then all of a sudden somebody does something that they're not supposed to do and we're holding them accountable and responsible for their actions and the consequences of that. And they're like, well, wait a minute. What about the grace of God? What about being a church of second chances? Why don't you forgive me? God forgave me. And the issue isn't forgiveness at all. The issue is trust. So I wrote something that might be helpful to you if you feel like somebody in your life particularly a Christian is using the crowbar of God in order to get you to trust them again when you've forgiven them, but don't trust them because the distinction needs to be made. I wrote it called forgiveness doesn't equal trust. And I'm finding it's a common misconception. If God's forgiven me, why won't you? Just buckle your Holy Holy Spirit seatbelt. We're just gonna get into this for a second. This statement typically is used as a crowbar to get someone to release them from the natural consequences of their behavior. People immediately feel like there's something biblical about this statement, and yet something about it isn't settling in their spirit. There's a reason for this. What they're demanding is more than forgiveness. They want trust, and this is a vital distinction. We are asked by God to forgive as we've been forgiven by him. It's in the Lord's prayer. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, 70 times seven is how you forgive people. Jesus forgave people when they were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Paul wrote about it over and over again in the epistles. We just read a verse that said, be a forgiver of people. We are commanded to forgive in order to free ourselves from the bondage of bitterness, which ultimately creates our own personal prison. Okay, no argument there. Are we called to forgive as a church? Everything we are called to forgive. So when a person's asking for restoration of position or a personal relationship with me to essentially pretend like something didn't happen to forgive and forget, I typically say, I have forgiven you and I want the best for you, but I don't trust you right now. This is where you see this volcanic eruption typically take place in them because they falsely equated forgiveness with faith. They're demanding that when you forgive them, you also place your complete faith in their character and credibility as well. And they want to go back to the way it was and what it used to be as soon as possible, typically in their terms and on their timing. So the purpose of forgiveness to them is to make like something didn't happen, employing verses like remembering your sins no more. And what about forgetting them as far as the east is from the west? And these verses speak of God's forgiveness, not restored trust or erasing the consequences of one's behavior. Forgiveness isn't a get out of jail free card. You can play to force people to give you back what you lost. You can't use God's forgiveness to guilt people into place into placing unjustified trust in you. That's demented doctrine. If forgiveness equaled trust, then when a pedophile comes to our church and we welcome pedophiles to our church that want to find the grace of God, we do that. We are not obligated, however, just to welcome them into our children's ministry the way we welcome them into our assembly. Not going to happen. Why? Do we forgive that person? We sure do. But we don't trust them in that particular context when they've shown themselves to be weak or untrustworthy there. 
And I know that might sound harsh, but forgiving people isn't a clean slate every time in every case. It's a posture of giving someone the same grace and mercy we've been given by God while holding the right to be reasonable with natural consequences for someone's poor decision. This takes discernment depending on the offense. I know that, but that's the point. The offender doesn't have the right to demand a restoration of rights. They are to be uh, placing themselves under authority of spiritual leadership and discerning friends to guide them along in the process of redemption, reconciliation, and maybe the hardest of all, restoration. Sometimes forgiveness doesn't mean that friendship will ever be safe again. Did you know that? Sometimes it's better to go to another church or attend a different life group or get another job or to move to another town. Sometimes you're not able to be around kids under the age of 18 and that's the jagged little pill you have to swallow as a result of your lapse of judgment that violated someone else's soul and trust. Sometimes forgiveness doesn't end with a restoration of trust and sometimes it shouldn't. I'm tired of people using God's forgiveness as a license to demand people's trust. They are not the same thing. Until this is understood, God's going to be used to make good people feel guilty for being reasonable and responsible. Sin has consequences, and forgiveness doesn't erase all of them. Contrite people don't make immature and premature demands of others who have hurt them, who have been hurt by their actions. It's not a monorail. It's two different tracks. I just wanted to share that, write that out, because I think there's so many people I talk to that are caught in a straight betwixt two and they don't understand. There are people that I love that I don't like. Does that make sense? There are people that God has called me to honor because they are made in the image of God that I don't respect. And that's okay. You earn respect. And there are people I've forgiven and I want the best for them, but I don't trust them. And you're allowed to. I just wanted you to know that. Fourth, transformation. People have asked what we believe about the trans community. We love the trans community, particularly the transformation community. This is the kind of trans community that God wants in the church. Not a community that's like, what are we going to do to get God updated or outmoded because we now um, have a corner on a new truth that he's antiquated and doesn't understand the relevancy of the world in which we live. And so we're trying to change God. We're trying to make him into our image. No, we've been made into his image. Thank you very much. And he's not really into facelifts. I love the verse Romans 12 too. do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. God's not going to conform to the pattern of this world, and he's not going to be transformed by us renewing his mind. 
And he is not trying to come into conformity to get our approval by being tested so that he knows what our good and perfect and pleasing will is. And he's like, can you please inform me? I've been under a rock for a while. I haven't been with it. I haven't been reading the newspaper lately. I haven't gone to like a graduate school. Can you tell me, oh thou enlightened one, what I'm missing out on? He's not up for grabs. Transformation for God isn't for sale in the lawn. You ever gone to a sale and you're like, I want that. And they're like, that's my grandma's car. That's not for sale. I'll tell you what's not for sale is God and his truth is not for sale. It's not up for grabs. We're not messing around with it. If there's anybody that's going to be conformed and reformed and transformed, it's us. Just a couple statements. We don't conform to this world's ideas about life or lifestyle. Not here. We conform to God's will and ways, not the will and whims of man. We trust God's truth, not culture's trends, right? Our first allegiance and citizenship is God's kingdom, not America. And I have said that in every administration. This doesn't have to, oh, in that administration, we're back with God. Oh, you know what? America is America, and I love the American dream, and I have a flag in front of my house. I'm glad I was born here. I love this country, but I am not hooking my car to any political party or movement. I'm hooking my car to the kingdom of God. And Christians, particularly in the last year, we've been exposed that we are more about partisan politics than we are about the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Second, we believe the Bible is absolute truth around here, just in case you've been wondering that. They're so cool and relevant and hip. I wonder if they're postmodern and relativistic and pluralistic. Ah! You know what I found out in my life is I am more traditional and old-fashioned by the day that goes by. I mean, I can wear cool bomber, you know, shirts that my wife buys me so she stays attracted to me. But <laughs> I'm, all, I'm really not that cool. I'm really old-fashioned and traditional, and, and I'm conservative as it relates to theology and progressive as it, as it relates to reaching people. That's the kind of leader I am and the leadership around here. The Bible's absolute truth. We don't follow our truth. We follow his truth. Even when God's ways aren't culturally relevant or politically correct, we're going with God. We don't get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible we believe. We believe it all. Third, we're not trying to renew God's mind. He's seeking to renew ours. He's just fine without our facelift, and the gospel doesn't need our spin doctoring. We don't see God as antiquated and ourselves as enlightened. Jesus isn't insecurely reinventing himself to maintain social popularity in every epoch of time. Short way of saying it, we're never going to tell God what he should think, feel, be, or do. We're the ones that are going to change and transform. I found these pictures of cool Jesus or relevant Jesus, you know, and he's this white, rosy cheeked European Jesus, which was already jacked up enough. But hey, how about this cool Jesus? I don't preach about repentance because I don't want to people, people to think I'm negative. Well, isn't that so woke, right? How about this? Blessed are those who compromise on moral issues when it's convenient. Your feelings have saved you. Go in peace. <laughs> yeah cool Jesus. It's what we want to go to church for, right? If you love me, keep my suggestions. Cool Jesus. You're perfect just the way you are. And he's like, no, I'm not. I need to get healed. 
How about this one? You will slowly begin to understand my true teaching on sexuality around 2,000 years from now. Because I just didn't understand sexuality back then, but you guys, whew, you're cutting edge. Uh, relevant, cool, woke Jesus is not what we're about here. We're just about this and trying our best. And when we make mistakes, we just cling to this like a, like a dinghy. You know what a dinghy is? Like a lifeboat. Okay. Four. <laughs> we test all the world's ideologies against the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We approve and affirm only what God approves and affirms. We don't blindly follow hashtags, social movements, or political parties. Our hearts hold fast to God's worldview. That's what our church is going to be about. And you're like, well, do you affirm this and do you affirm this? I don't affirm anything other than Jesus. That's what I affirm. And I affirm the things that God's word affirms. I love everyone. I welcome everyone. Everyone can belong in this place. But myself, our leaders, and everybody here is not going to conform to the world, but we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can test and improve what God's will is, is good and pleasing and perfect will. Like, but that's an old book. That's part of the reason why I like it. It's been through a lot. The last one is making disciples, and I have minus a minute to talk about this. But it's a big one. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. I just want to point out one thing, particularly in discipleship. Number one, we're all disciples when we come to know Jesus, because all a disciple is, is a learner. That's what the word means. I'm a learner. I sit at Jesus' feet and I posture myself. He's the rabbi. I'm the Talmud, right? I'm the disciple. He's the rabbi. He's the teacher. But we celebrate in this church, not just the people that are deep disciples that have been through every Beth Moore study and read all these books and even Kay Arthur, and they listen all the time to podcasts that are biblical and spiritual. We celebrate every step of the journey towards salvation and beyond. And I made this graphic, these 16 steps of spiritual salvation. We typically get down to acceptance, which is at zero, and then they begin to have a hunger, appetite, and affection for God. They alter their lifestyle they're activated and going themselves and living for Christ. But I like to start with an atheist. And when they become an agnostic, I'm like, yes, they're closer to Jesus. And then they're agnostic, which means they don't really know one way or the other. I'm like, oh, yes. And then they're just angry and they're anti-religion, anti-Christian, and they're apathetic. And then they're affected a little bit by it and somewhat attracted because somebody's living out Titus, right? And then they acknowledge some of the things. They start agreeing and then they accept. And some of you here are at minus eight. Welcome. We're all taking steps on a continuum. Dan came up and said that he met somebody recently that's at minus seven. We celebrate it. It used to be at minus nine. And I know for me, I just look at people, I'm like, I don't go into the world like, look at all these unbelievers. Wow. I look at the world, I'm like, look at all these pre-Christians. That's hope. If they knew what I know, they're pre-Christians. They may not believe, but if they knew what I knew, they would believe. And I just want you to know here today, all of us are disciples and we're here following God. 
and we don't do it right in this church. We're not giving this because like we found a corner on the truth. No other church gets this stuff. It's like ours. And I got it from Mount Sinai when I was in Israel and I come down glowing off the mountain with, no, we probably are missing a couple things. We probably could add a few more. What we do want to be on this planet in the short hand breadth of time we have on this planet, we don't want to waste a nanosecond living for ourselves. We want to just pour our lives into God. Use me, whatever step I'm in, no matter how broken I am, use me for your glory, God. And everybody, listen to me, everybody can be a participant in this thing. Nobody has to sit on the sidelines. You don't have to be in the nosebleeds. Some of you guys here, like I come with my wife because she makes me come and I'm really more into hunting and more tactile things and I like the woods and I hate church and I hate music and I hate spirituality. I don't feel like a good Christian. Welcome, brother. You belong here. You belong here. And you're like, well, I'm not like you in seminary. I'm not like me. And what I mean by that is what you see is not all of me. Don't frame your characterization of me based on 40 minutes of monologuing about God. I like the woods. I like the movies. I like lots of stuff. I like sex, like Tony was talking about up here. It's funny, my son, he's in third grade. In fourth grade, and he's like, it's open to third. I'm like, oh, we're here already. And Heidi already told me, with the three girls, I went out with them and had the birds and the bees conversation. It's your turn with the boys. And so Tony comes up to me, and my, my uh, youngest filled out a card about what he wondered about sex to an- for the people to answer, Ryan and Heather, thankfully, not me. Uh, and he filled out, what kinds of sex can I have? third grade and I'm like no kinds <laughs> no mas for you let me pray because they have to play something and there's an anime so if you want to go get your kids and bring them in there's this cool like animation that's up during this song so just kind of play like elevator music just for a sec and then they can get their kids and okay sounds good golf clap elevator music all right God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these words. But these aren't just human words. These are words that mean something to us because they come from your word. Help us to be a church that doesn't bend or buckle or break uh, to the pressures of this world, but to renew our minds and make them obedient to you, God, today. We love you. Send us away from this place just charged with hope, teeming with hope to share with this world, not because our lives are great, but because you are a great God and a good God and you have plans for us. Use us this week. Use our mouths and our smiles and our faces and our lives to testify of your goodness in our life. And I pray this in the power of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Hey, you're dismissed. Enjoy this beautiful day.